I'm good. The, the phrase in that song there, the, the evidence that I need is the empty tomb. And I think what we forget is that every Sunday that we gather, that's what we're remembering. So as you sit here and look around the room at all these masked bandits that are here with you, that is an evidence of something. It's not an evidence of the fact that we have the coolest gig in town, because we don't. It's not an evidence that we have the warmest room in town, because we don't. It's not the most convenient place to go, is it? We're in the middle of a cornfield. It's an evidence that the tomb is still empty. And that the one who once was in it is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We have hope, don't we? We have hope. In days that desperately need hope, you and I have hope. It's not because we're anything wonderful. It's, it's because we have been rescued out of the very pit and miry clay as the sin that so easily envelops us. We have hope. Don't you? I hope you do. I hope you understand that, that when we talk about the things we're going to talk about here in 2 Peter 3, bonus points for seamless transition right there, that what we are celebrating as we look at this, that there's darkness, there's difficulty in here, there's frustration in here as you wrestle with the reality of the world around us and what we are being called to, but all of that is spoken about in the context of hope. We talked about it last week, the day of the Lord is coming. That's good news. Too many of us are looking at the events surrounding us and we're like, well, I don't know. I mean, this, this looks like the end. It does. That should be like, looks like ice cream. Because we have hope. He's coming back. And sooner now than it ever has been before, that's the one thing I can say with certainty. He's coming back. And that should change the way we live. If you truly believe that that day is coming when the sky will part and there riding on a white stallion will be the one who is tattooed on the thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if you truly believe that there will come a day when the, the sky will split open and Jesus Christ himself with the sword coming from his mouth, King of kings and Lord of lords is there to take us with him, then tomorrow's not going to be your average Monday. And that's what Peter's trying to explain to us. Look at verse I'll start in verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Just to give us a little bit of a ramp up, he says this. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. The Lord doesn't delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens, they will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since 
all of these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all of his letters, and there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and the unstable will twist them in their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So therefore, dear friends, because you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you're not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Peter says, he is coming that better change the way you live. What sort of people are we to be, he says in verse 11. It is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. I think we hear the word holy and we instantly think, monk. And for too many of us, it keeps us from truly pursuing what holiness actually is. Holiness is a full separation of yourself, a full dedication of yourself to God and his glory. Focusing on who he is and what he's done and making sure that all your life is, is aligned with what he desires for you. That's holy conduct. And godliness means to reflect the very character of God. So how do we do that in light of the fact that he is coming back soon? What, what kind of person should you be? You should be a person whose priorities match your beliefs. Your priorities should match your beliefs. He says this in verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, if we believe... As, he, as Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 1, if we believe that we're just strangers and sojourners and foreigners and exiles, we're just passing through this land, this land is temporary, this land is not our home. If we truly believe that, then our priorities will demonstrate that. If you truly believe that he could come at any moment, you would stop affixing such great value to temporary things. Our possessions, no matter how fine they may be, no matter, no matter how much effort and energy you placed into those possessions, so, so I'm pretty proud of myself, I can build something from Ikea. I speak the language. The little dude on the thing with the single tool makes everything. It's amazing. But it doesn't matter how much energy and effort I put into building that Ikea bookshelf or how much money I spent in going to Lancaster County and purchasing the Amish handmade furniture. Both are just kindling for the fire that's to come. And if you truly understood that, then you'd stop prioritizing your possessions over things that are eternal. Now listen, I'm not saying don't enjoy possessions. Enjoy your possessions by all means. Take delight in the gifts that God has given to you. Why would you lose sleep over something that's not going to last for eternity? Your priorities should match your belief. If you believe that, that you're living for something eternal, that's Matthew 6, Seek you first the kingdom of God. Do you know what lasts for eternity? People. 
Does your life demonstrate the fact that your priorities align with those of God? Do you prioritize people over your stuff? How do you spend your time? Do you truly believe he's coming? Because if you did, your priorities would match your beliefs. If you do believe he is coming, you will live a life that is eager for his return. You can see that in verses 12, 13, and 14, where Peter repeats this saying, as you wait for the day of God. Verse 13, we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 14, while you wait for these things, the, the idea is, is, is a looking forward to, a longing for, and being eager for. It doesn't mean that you're just waiting for the end to come. It means you're looking forward to the new, it's what we talked about last week, how the, the desert will blossom like the finest of gardens in the new heavens, in the new earth. That when, when, when God recreates everything and it's all new, there'll be no more weeping and crying. The, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like a cattle. There'll be no more evil. The, 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 the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. And best of all, God will make his dwelling place with us. And that's what's coming. That's what we look forward to. That's what we're eager for. Are you eager for that? I'm going to tell you, and this is, this is actually not even an insult, which is pretty amazing coming from me. I think most of us are eager for the Lord's return, like those who cheer for the Washington football team are eager for them to win the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not ripping. I'm going to be honest. An, 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 an honest Washington football fan will, will come on this journey with me. Because listen, you got to understand something. Sure, it would be nice if Washington would win the Super Bowl this coming year. But we don't think they're gonna. We have absolutely no expectation of them winning the Super Bowl. They are missing so many pieces and parts and players, there's no chance. I'm, so yeah, it would be great, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna adjust my schedule come next football season to make sure I watch every game because it's certainly gonna be historic because this is the year. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm not gonna argue against it. It'd be great if it happened, but it ain't gonna happen. And that's how we look forward to the coming of Christ. Sure, it would be nice, but I'm not expecting it. <laughs> we need to live with eager anticipation. We need to live with enthusiasm. We need to live like it's any moment now. Washington fans, you need to live like Ravens fans. I, I mean, come on, it could be any second, right? So close. That's really hard for me to say. You all know that. I'm growing in my sanctification and the Patriots were a dumpster fire this year. So, okay. <laughs> Eager for that return, anticipation. It's what the angel was talking about in Acts chapter 1 with the disciples. As, as, as Christ has resurrected from the dead, and he's gathered the disciples together, and he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, he gathers them on the mountaintop, and he's talking to them, and they're like, so, so when's the day of the Lord supposed to come, Jesus? Jesus is like, guys... It's not for you to know. The Father's already affixed to that time in heaven. It's, it's, we're not for you to know. No. What's going to happen is uh, the Spirit's going to come upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Jesus like, pew! I mean, the picture I get, and it's a stupid picture, and I know it's not right. The picture I get is Superman finally taking off, where everybody's like, oh, there you go, pew! 
Because Jesus goes. It says he goes right into the cloud. Pew! I'm sure that sound effect was there too. (laughs) And this is the disciples' response to that. Which you can't blame them. I mean, come on, you don't see that every day. It says two angels appeared next to the disciples. And the angel's like, hey, guys, guys, hey, hey. That Jesus that went is the same one that's coming back. Why are you still standing here? He gave you a job. Be my witnesses. Go. God has not called you to be a spectator. He's called you to be actively involved as you understand that at any moment that same Jesus that has gone up before you is going to return. Are you eagerly anticipating his return like that? Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. What is Peter saying? He's saying, what kind of person should you be? You should be the type of person who pursues repentance. Make every effort, be diligent, put in the work. To be found, that's a judicial term. You stand before the judge, your charges are laid out, the evidence is laid out, and the judge will then find you guilty or innocent. He says you are going to be found. So put in all the work to be found without spot, without blemish. At its most basic level, what Peter is saying is to be found opposite of the false teachers that I've been talking about. Verse 13 of chapter 2, talking about the false teachers, it says they considered a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. There are spots and blemishes delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. He says, oh no, you need to be found opposite of the false teachers. You need to be eagerly awaiting Christ's return and continue to be washed in the blood of the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I'm going to try not to lose you here because I can talk around it and miss the point. So I'm going to attempt my best to stick to the point. Theologically speaking which can also be translated as truthfully told, the believer in Jesus Christ already is without spot or blemish. Because you are seen as a believer in Jesus Christ with the the righteousness of Christ upon you. So there is, your sin has been removed, the guilt of that sin has been removed, the divide between you and God has been removed as you have been reconciled to God. The problem is this, the believer doesn't always live according to that standing. And so what happens is the believer allows himself to become enslaved and held in bondage to sin still. He doesn't have to, but he does because the believer, this side of the grave, is still a sinner. Now that's not your primary identification. Your primary identification, as we have pointed out very clearly this morning already, is a child of God, but we live in light of our past, of our chains, of the enslavement we keep running back to instead of in light of who we truly are. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, in case you're like, I don't think you're right. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, clearly point that out. If you say you are without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The one who says he has no sin is calling God a liar. And the truth is not in him. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Your response to sin in your own life 
as you consider the fact that he is going to return at any moment, must be rooted in both faith and repentance. Faith is trusting the promise of grace that Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. Repentance is turning from your choice of sin to Jesus. I don't have a ton of time to do this, but, but you can make a little note if you want. Psalm chapter 32, Psalm 32, you can read through that later. And I think as you read through and study Psalm 32, what you will find is you will, will find a very full description of what repentance looks like. And what repentance looks like is this. First of all, you acknowledge your sin specifically and personally. And if you don't know what sin you have, then you pray, search me, O God. Know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. If you pray that and ask God that sincerely, not because it's a magic mantra, but because you are asking the God who knows all, sees all, and knows you, and knows you completely and thoroughly, he will reveal your sin to you. And when you come into contact or, or come into understanding of your sin, don't grade your sin on a curve. Your sin is way worse than you know. But the good news is the gospel is better than you can understand. And so as you confess those sins, you then run to God for safety. Not to the promise of never doing it again. That is a a, a lie of the devil that he plants inside of you to deceive you, to cause you to think, okay, I got this right, and then you are just going to fall again and again and again. When your repentance is, ah, I'll never do that again. I feel so terrible. I'll never do it again. No, 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 no. Repentance is, I did it because I am a sinner. God, I need you to be my refuge in this. I need you to be my strength in this. Because if there is a God, and there is, and you're not him, and you're not, then you should expect the confession of sin and repentance to be a daily event for yourself. If you are not confessing and repenting daily, then according to Peter, you're following the path of the false teachers who have ceased to call for repentance because where is he? I'm doing all this. He hasn't punished me yet. Must be fine. No, there must be repentance. And that's what Peter's calling us to. Knowing that he is going to come and it will be soon means we will be the type of people whose lives radiate the gospel. I usually use the technical term oozes the gospel. Some of you, that word makes uncomfortable. So I will not say oozes the gospel. I will say radiates instead. See what I did there? All right, good. Um, He says in verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So the false teachers are saying, the patience, this this delay, this this sign of non-involvement, God really doesn't care about these things, but you and I are supposed to view the patience as an opportunity to do his work. a story in 2 Kings 7 that talks about this city that is being besieged. And in the middle of the story, it doesn't seem like it's the point of the story until the story ends, but in the middle of the story, we find out there are four lepers who are outside the city. They've been cast out of their city because of their leprosy. 
Now, the, the city they've been cast out is being besieged. There's no food getting in. There's no, no supplies getting in. They, they're just, the, the enemy is just strangling the city. And as these four lepers outside the city have this conversation with each other, they're like, listen, what are we doing sitting outside the city? We, we, we've got a couple options here. If we stay here outside the city, we're going to die. If we go back into the city, well, they're under siege, we're going to die. But if we went into the camp of the enemy, they obviously have food. They have supplies. Hey, yep, they might kill us. We're going to die anyway. Our only chance of survival is to go to the, the camp of the enemy. And so these four lepers head into the, the camp of the enemy, and they are imagining in my head flinching the entire way, being as quiet as they can so that they don't create any um, response from the enemy. And as they get into the encampment of the enemy, they are shocked to find that there is no one there. But everything is left behind. You've got tents, you've got silver, you've got gold, you've got food, you've got provisions, you have everything you could possibly imagine. So those four lepers do exactly what you would expect them to do. They run into the first tent and it says they just start eating like crazy and then they take the silver, they take the gold, they take the food and they run someplace and they hide it. And then they go to the next tent and they do the same thing. And somewhere in the process, one of the, 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 the lepers stops and says to his friends, now the old King James said it this way, we do not well. We need to go back to the city and share the good news of what it is we have found. The patience of our Lord is to be viewed as salvation. You have been eating ridiculously, feasting on the bread that God has provided for you. If you hoard it to yourself, you do not well. There are people in this city who are starving to death. And they need to hear the good news of the provision that has been provided for them. How else will they hear it if you don't speak it? There are young men, young women. Old men, old women. Little boys and little girls. Who are lost and headed to hell all around us. And some of us just keep putting bread in our back pocket. The patience of our Lord is to be viewed as salvation. In your mind's eye, just for a moment, humor me just for a minute. Who is it that you know that desperately needs Jesus? Okay, you got it? Are you burdened for them because they truly need Jesus? Or because it would be way more convenient for you if they knew Jesus? The one who knows and understands that some point soon Jesus Christ is going to return has a life that radiates the gospel. 
because they know someday soon the people who are around them are gonna answer for their sins. And the only acceptable response is, he died for me. And he's coming soon. So is the end of our times. Let me get moving here. Um, Peter says, you know, Paul has written these things to us. He's reminded us of these things. Um, We need to be living a life that is careful to not follow error. We need to be living a life of humility as we study the word. I I love the fact that Peter mentions how difficult Paul is to understand. Gives you hope, doesn't it? I mean, he's not wrong. Paul, Paul is the, the apostle, the author of scripture who is responsible for most fights that happen in Bible study. All right, you say, women in ministry, head coverings, uh, predestination and election and uh, all these things. Uh, it's Paul's fault. And what Peter says is oftentimes the false teachers will take these complex ideas and twist them in such a way that it actually ends up serving the false teacher. So he says, you need to be on your guard. Don't be led away from the main things. These false teachers are leading others into idolatry. They're living lives that elevate the creation above the creator. He says, you also have to be careful because some people are are creating concepts and ideas that are actually heretical simply because, and those heresies are born out of the idea that this, these teachers won't say this simple phrase. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. See, you know how good that feels? I mean, there's time. So you get to Romans chapter 9 through 11, this incredible treatise of theology and doctrine and so, about uh, the soteriology of mankind, and you see the, the, the need for salvation, what God accomplishes for us through the, through the cross, and it's amazing. And then there's aspects and implications of Romans 9 through 11 that just hurt your head. And while I have a place that I stand, and I believe it's a biblical, biblical theology-type stance, I, I also understand that other people, good people, have different ideas. And so when I get to those things, my first response is going to be like, <laughs> I don't know. You think I know? I don't know an example from this, in verse 12 of 2 Peter 3, this word is used, hasten. It says, you wait for the day of God and you hasten its coming. Now that word can be used a couple of different ways. It can be used uh, to be intensely eager for. But most often, that word hasten means to bring it about. And so if you look at verse 12, he says, as you wait for the day of God and bring about its coming, wait a minute, what? So, so now you've got to wrestle in your head. It's like, hold on a second. Um, I'll, I'll let you enter into my, my world just for a second. This week is like, okay, how, do, how do you deal with that? Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus says, the Father has already affixed in heaven the, the time of the return. He, he's, that's already d- decided upon. But, but then you get to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, you know, uh, your, your kingdom come, so you can pray for it to come. The end of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, okay? And then you have Peter himself preaching a message in Acts chapter 3, where he's calling Jews to repentance. And he says, I want you to repent, and I want you to turn from your sins. And then three things will happen. First, your sins will be wiped out. Second, you'll, you'll experience seasons of refreshment from God himself. And third, if you repent... God will send Jesus, who's in heaven, until the time of restoration. So does God wait for us to act, to bring about his day? I thought it was fixed in heaven. How do those go together? I mean, I think one answer certainly could be um, God, because he does all the time, has already factored into his timetable our stupidity. Right? 
So has he factored into it our obedience as well? How does that... I don't know. I'm going to write a book. That will be its title. It's a very short book. Actually, it's a very long book, what I don't know. We, we need the humility to admit we're not know-it-alls. We need the humility to admit that God's bigger than us. We, we need the humility that approaches ideas, concepts, and teaching like that, where, where we become experts in our own weaknesses and experts in the strength of others. So that means I can look at my interpretation of verse 12 and like, okay, this is where I'm landing, but I know mm, this gives me great pause. And this guy disagrees with me, and he's right about this part. Now, uh, let, me, let me be clear about something. I'm not saying you don't dig in, you don't study. You absolutely need to dig in and study. In fact, Peter is going to tell us that again, verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You must be growing in the understanding of grace. Grow in the implications of grace. Man, I, I want to grow in my appreciation for, for the gospel. I want to grow in my understanding of what it means. This little phrase, you ready? He died for me. I, I want to grow in my understanding of, of that. Those simple little words, aren't they? But, 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 but books upon books upon books have been written trying to wrestle with the, the concept and the implications of that simple little phrase. He died for me. I want to grow in what grace really means. I want to understand what it means that, that as I have received Jesus Christ, I'm supposed to walk in him. I want to understand what grace really means. I want to dig into that understanding I want to dig into the understanding and recognition of the fact that, that what God has given to me is an assurance of his acceptance of me. Because I'm not judged based on my merits. I'm not judged based on my activity. I'm judged on Jesus' perfection. I, I want to struggle and wrestle with that. I want, to, I want to remember that the basis of my relationship with God is he died for me. Nothing else. He gave himself for me. And when you recognize that, understand that, <laughs> no matter what I do, I'm safe in the arms of Christ. And now, now some people hear that and be like, okay, so you're allowed to do whatever you want, and you're safe. Oh, I no, no, no. The person who truly understands grace, this is why he's telling us to get to it, the person who truly understands grace does not see that as an invitation to live any way you want. The person who truly understands grace sees it as an invitation to serve God out of grateful and thankful hearts. Grow in that grace. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, this shouldn't be a surprise to any of you. It was just Valentine's Day. If that's a surprise to you, do not make eye contact with your spouse. It was just Valentine's Day. Stephanie and I we uh, went on a Valentine's date. We did a couple things around Valentine's Day. It was a great time. Uh, we talked about our first date. We have a very different understanding of which one was actually our first date, which means I was so smooth, I outsmoothed her. She didn't even know I was pursuing her, so that's good news. But the one thing we certainly agree on is when it clicked. We, we had gone to a hockey game together. It was a college club hockey game, so there was all of 40 people in the stands. There was more people in the stands that were playing the game, or slip that. More people playing the game than were in the stands. We were in a local arena. It was, like, it was like it felt this morning. It was like that in the arena, so we were freezing. And we didn't watch a second of the game. We talked the entire time. The next night, we got together, and we talked for hours and hours. And, and, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, 
hours, and we just sat there. I wanted to know who she was. I wanted to understand her background. I wanted to know what she liked, what she didn't like. I wanted to know what her family was like. I wanted to know uh, about her, her love for Jesus. I wanted to understand all of these different aspects of this, and I just kept asking her question upon question upon question because I was completely into her, and evidently, vice versa, because she didn't run away. Like, this guy's crazy. Um, and last time I checked, she'll still be home when I get home later, so that's good news. Um, I was infatuated with her, and I still am. I absolutely am. I can't, I can't get enough. She amazes me. So I, I'm that type of person. I love walking down memory lane. I love doing the where, what, why, when, yeah, um, because what it does is it reminds me how good I have it. But I can't just do that on Valentine's Day. We need to remind ourselves again and again and again about Jesus so we don't forget how good we have it. And if you think enduring a 40-minute sermon on a Sunday morning is enough, then you don't understand what it means that he's coming back. You don't understand what it means that though he could have condemned us, and I'm running a little long, so please forgive me. He could have condemned us, but, but he's decided to show us compassion and mercy instead and patience. You don't understand that he died where you should have died, that he took your place. You don't understand that the suffering he went through was not some cosmic joke. It was the suffering you deserve. You don't understand how loved you are by God. That while you were a sinner, Christ would die for you. You need to consider the cost of the cross. You need to consider the freedom that is yours as a result. You need to consider the fact that in the resurrection, he conquered sin and death and hell and Satan. So we can be made right with God for all of eternity. Seems like a long time, doesn't it? It's a safe place. You can agree. I have struggled for a lot of my life thinking about the length of eternity. What in the world? I go crazy if I don't have something on my schedule for six hours. What am I going to do for all of eternity? I guarantee you that when Paul said for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, he wasn't lying. I guarantee you, if we went into the place of heaven right now, ain't none of them up there like, bummer. Sure wish I, but wearing masks to the grocery store seems like a blast. Wish I was down there. That ain't happening. <laughs> but if you don't grow in your knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did for you, you're not going to remember that. What type of people should we be? should be people who are not afraid that the end is near, but are driven by the truth that the new is coming. And that newness means our eyes are filled full of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. He's coming.
You ready? Would you pray, Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the goodness of your promises. Lord, we uh, certainly admit that even as we spend hours upon hours wrestling and struggling and studying and trying to get to know you, we will always come up short. We will never fully understand you. And Father, I pray that wouldn't cause us to pull up short or to stop. Instead, Lord, I pray that would drive us to your word. That would drive us into your presence. That, Lord, we would would pursue you with an intensity that we just haven't before. Lord, I thank you that you loved us enough to send us your son. I thank you that your patience (laughs) is for us. Lord, I pray that we would have our eyes just filled full, even right now, of who you are and how great your love is for us. May it overwhelm us. In Christ's precious name I pray, amen.